This is a Federal News Network podcast. The National Science Foundation would get an extra $50 billion under a proposal from the Biden administration. The NSF would establish a technology directorate and give out grants for advanced chip making, communications and other technologies deemed crucial to American competitiveness. Biden also wants tens of billions for other research initiatives. Joining me with how this might all work, North Carolina State University industrial and systems engineering professor Julie Swan. Ms. Swan, good to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you here today and talk about these critical industries and research infrastructure. And you have been tasked to the CDC. You've looked at supply chains for the pandemic and in general, the things that have bedeviled the resilience of the United States. So first of all, tell us a little bit about what you learned in that experience with CDC. As you mentioned, I was on loan to the CDC during the H1N1 pandemic back in 2009 when I spent a lot of time looking at supply chains. And we had shortages of personal protective equipment at that time, for example, of masks, partly because many of them were produced overseas and we didn't have a a large backup supply in the U.S., That kind of problem has continued to plague us across many different supply chains, from the ones for PPE and masks and gloves and gowns to ones associated with vaccine and all of the components that go into both vaccines and other types of biomanufactured products. And then, of course, extending to semiconductor chips, many of which are made in other countries. So, you know, there really are a lot of areas where we've seen over the years that our supply chains are vulnerable to disruptions. And if this money were to be appropriated, and it looks like at least some of it will be, This, I presume, would go to various agencies that make grants. Where are the areas that you feel research grants would have the most impact with respect to the whole resilience issue in the future? Yeah, there are lots of different areas where I think we'll see increased funding and and where I think funding is needed. I definitely think that the U.S. needs to look really hard at the supply chains associated with pharmaceuticals and other medical products. You know, it's not only vaccines and PPE, but there are other kinds of products that are at risk for various kinds of disruptions. So I think we'll see some investment in that space, possibly some reshoring of manufacturing or some nearshoring to make that system more secure. I think that we will see similar kinds of things with respect to semiconductor chips, where we'll determine whether there are some parts of that that might be brought back to the U.S., taking into consideration, you know, all of the different things that would be needed to make that happen. We're also seeing a great interest in technology, such as that discussed for the National Science Foundation. And there are so many different areas where the U.S. needs to continue making investments. Quantum computing is one. Can you imagine if some countries around the world are the first ones to quantum computing, what kind of advantage that might give them over us? And so that is one where we need to continue making advances, both in fundamental science and moving to the technology side. We see the same thing in communications as well. You know, we have seen that some of our networks are at risk. And so that's an area where we need to shore up our capacity, both on the technology and research side, as well as on the manufacturing side. And just on that quantum computing idea, of course, the fear is it could make all encryption obsolete overnight and so forth. So it strikes me that not only would another nation have a head start in a race, so to speak, but they could also put 
concrete on the nations that don't have it and keep them from getting out of the starting gate with the very quantum computing capability itself. That is a great analogy. You're absolutely right. And so that's why it's even more crucial to make sure that the U.S. is continuing to make investments in that. And this does require lots of different kinds of investments. I mean, there's the investment in the infrastructure itself, the communication and the lines and you know all of these pieces. There's the investment in the ideas and the scientists who are building those ideas. This also often involves partnerships with companies. IBM is one partner in the quantum computing space, and there are others, of course, all working together to really crack that nut so that the U.S. will be able to move forward in that space. We're speaking with Julie Swan. She's an engineering professor at North Carolina State University. And how does a given agency, how does even something as presumably expert across the board as the National Science Foundation know where to best invest in what might have the best outcome? Because we are still a capitalistic society in that sense, and people eventually want things to pay off, even if they're good for society anyway. Those are great questions. The National Science Foundation does have a great set of scientific leaders who are now part of the agency, who came through the science themselves. They also have a lot of scientific advisors. And I can tell you one thing that I think is important is to invest in a portfolio of options. Sometimes you don't know ahead of time which one will pay off. So just as we saw for the vaccines, where we invested in multiple products in case you know one was successful and one was not, the same thing needs to happen at the National Science Foundation and in other agencies. And some of these investments need to be risky. You don't want every single investment to pay off because that would mean that you're not taking enough risks. So you just want some of them to pay off. And I guess this all relates to kind of industrial and economic policy in that sense, because when you look at the semiconductor industry, which was largely started here, I mean, Silicon Valley is misnamed now. It's really Software Valley, but it used to be Silicon Valley. And it's what they were able to etch into Silicon that really gave us the second industrial age, if you will. I had no idea how much of it had fled the United States and how little Silicon is actually etched in Silicon Valley. But there's a kind of an irony because it takes a couple of billion dollars to build a normal semiconductor fab line, and it's peopled with people that are, this is not blue-collar work, it's very highly skilled work, whether designing or making the chips, and yet we want to put them in equipment that you can buy for $33 a month on your phone plan or $172 a month on your car plan. So there's huge capital lowering prices. That's a tough combination to try to rationalize. You are absolutely right. This is a really tough problem. And there are these competing tensions where some of these products can be expensive to make. There is also the aspect related to uh, the environmental side and producing them in a way that's sustainable and, and not violating any regulations that we might have. And as you said, at low enough cost. And I, I have to say, we have to find ways in our society that we invest in things that can also keep us secure. So one advantage of having some more of that manufacturing back within the U.S. borders is that it might enable a greater security of that communication system. And we should be willing to pay a higher price for that greater communication. But there may be different mechanisms for doing so and thinking through how best to do that. So we have to invest both not only during wartime like a pandemic, but also during peacetime and find ways to 
make it sustainable. And let me ask you a question from a different angle. A great deal of grant money now goes to academic institutions. And in this case, it would be, well, all the technologies you mentioned. In your work as a professor on the ground level at a university, at a well-known one, a high-quality one, do you find that men and women are equally interested in these fields, semiconductor, fab, design, industrial systems, all of this communication technology? Because it sounds like a cliche, but the United States needs all of its brain power on these things and not just mostly men and a few you know, women that also like STEM, kind of the 80s or 90s model. You're right that we need all of that brain power, not only both from men and women, but from all colors of skin and across groups that sometimes have been underrepresented in engineering. And what I find is that it's not the interest that keeps people back. Sometimes it's other kind of barriers and in getting involved early enough and that things that have societal impact are often very attractive to people from a variety of backgrounds across different genders, different race, ethnicities, different backgrounds in other kinds of ways. We do have to give them the support that they need and we have to start early enough. I mean, really this focus on math and science has to happen early enough so that people don't get behind. And it starts with investments in preschool and elementary education well before we get to high school and college. And then the high school and, and college is really important as well. I was thinking third grade, but even earlier than that, when it gets to that kind of mindset oriented toward the language of mathematics, that's probably crucial. That's right. And it's not just the language. Sometimes it's physical. You know, it's the Lego blocks and, and all of these kinds of things that children with resources may grow up with and, you know, children of either gender can play with. But giving their brains different kinds of puzzles to think through and getting them inspired by different kinds of things. So we do need to think about that whole spectrum to continue recruiting into science and technology fields across all of the best and brightest minds. Julie Swan is an industrial and systems engineering professor at North Carolina State University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series Lessons in Leadership what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So, what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees, 
Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation, uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.